You're listening to the Lost Mountain Podcast. Lost Mountain exists to help all kinds of people find and follow Jesus. We hope today's message encourages you towards a deeper relationship with Christ. If you have questions from today's message, email us at info at lmbc.us. Link is in the show notes. We're going to finish this morning our series called False Faith. Our series called False Faith. You could go, I think, in our area with this for a long time, uh, addressing what are our particular tendencies toward false faith and cultural Christianity. Two weeks ago when we talked about uh, uh, politics as false faith, um, one of the things you have to do is hone in on the particular ways in which we are tempted mostly in our society to, to uplift and look to political leaders and philosophies and parties um, instead of Christ. Were I giving that message in Portland or Seattle or San Francisco or Boston or New York, it would have had a whole other directional bent to it. Same issues, but on the other side, by and large. Um, but the gospel cuts through all of that and hits all of us where we are. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 16 this morning. So if you have your Bibles with you, and I encourage you to bring your Bibles. I encourage you to bring your Bibles. I know we put the words up. Uh, we do that primarily for, for guests. I know you can look in your app in the notes, notes section. I know you can look it up on your phone, on your tablet. But I encourage you to bring your Bibles. Bring your Bibles. Family, faith, and football, or rather faith, family, and football, Matthew chapter 16. One of the things that I find myself doing from time to time is going back and watching older movies, movies that I saw as a kid. Uh, and I've been in that season the last few weeks, and one of them that I watched uh, about two weeks ago was Kelly's Heroes. Any of you ever seen Kelly's Heroes? All right, I thought we'd be heavy on this side and get lighter as we went. Yeah, Kelly's Heroes uh, movie, I, I love and enjoy. I think the cast, um, Telly Savalas, Clint Eastwood, Carol O'Connor, Donald Sutherland as Oddball, um, one of his most memorable characters, really is unbeatable. And that's a movie that came out in 1970, so nearly a decade before I was born. But I saw it, I saw it when I was little and loved it just as much when I watched it a week or two ago, maybe loved it more. I go back sometimes through that, as I know uh, any of you may, to certain songs or certain movies or maybe certain places, because they bring an element of comfort to you sometimes, do they not? There's, there's a degree of nostalgia there uh, that comes. And I think it's okay that we use movies and music and locations and uh, maybe even events or hobbies at times like that. I think that's uh, one of the many common graces that God has given us in our life. But far too often in the Bible Belt, uh, that's how the vast majority of our neighbors, our friends, our classmates, um, our coworkers relate to faith. They go back and dabble in it from time to time. It gives them a little comfort. Uh, it's kind of nostalgic. Maybe they grew up in church, grew up in Sunday school. They know some stories. Dean and Sarah, who I'll, I'll quote several times this morning, uh, but for the last time for a while, uh, from the Unsaved Christian, says this, that in the Bible Belt, identifying as a Christian is a way of life. But sadly, believing the gospel and following Jesus are often not. There remains in the South an incredible opportunity 
for the church to make the gospel known to a region that is saturated with access to the gospel, but not true understanding of the gospel. Church, this is where we are today. This is where we live. This is our our time and our space and our place that God has set us down. This is the mission challenge for us on our streets and in the places where we interact with friends and associates. I hope that we will be a church in time that rises to this occasion, gets both the courage, the clarity, and the conviction about this reality, knows how it is that we share as we're going to offer some equipping things coming, particularly around how it is that we share the gospel and gospel invitations in a Bible Belt culture. And I'll just remind you as I read a little more from Dean this morning, he's a Southerner. He's a Bible Belter. So he knows this instinctively and grew up in this culture. This is our mission field and the message we have to take to it uh, Maybe more, but it will be no less than the passage we have before us this morning. Let's look at Matthew chapter 16, verse 24. Now, before I read verses 24 to 28, I want us to understand that uh, Jesus is, is slowly making his way toward Jerusalem, and for the first time in the preceding verses, he's let his disciples, his closest followers, know what's ahead for him, what's coming. They don't understand it, They don't understand it, but it is coming. He tells them that he must be killed after suffering many things, and he must be raised to life. And Peter takes him aside and gives him a little counsel. He has a come to Jesus meeting with Jesus himself, where Jesus is the one who's supposed to listen. And he says, nah, that'll never happen to you. They're imagining the kingdom coming, but not like this. Are we going up to Jerusalem? Yes. Are we going up there to confront the elders, the religious leaders, the teachers, the corrupt priests and caretakers of the temple? Yes. We're going to gather followers as we go. And when we get there and the time is right, we're going to attack and we're going to overthrow the temple guard, the chief priests, the corrupt teachers of the law, and Jesus will sit on the throne and reign on the temple and establish the kingdom of God. This is what they have in their mind, and Jesus tells Peter to get behind him, Satan. Now, I want you to see the humanity, though this is not the verse I'm preaching. It just uh, is asking me to speak to it. But I want you to notice the humanity of Jesus here in this statement. If this had not affected Jesus at all, if there was no temptation here In Jesus' life, if there was no wrestling in his soul, there would have been no reason for him to tell Peter to get behind him, to call him a stumbling block to him, telling that his mind was not on the concerns of God, but on the concerns of man. In our time, this should be a clarion call to us to ask ourselves each day in how we're thinking even about world events, much less our day-to-day lives. Are our minds set on the things of God? Or the things of man. Are your minds this morning, friends, brothers, sisters in Christ, is your mind today, is it set on the things of God? Or is it set on the things of men? Then Jesus, to bring clarity to them, who still seem confused about what it is to be on the way with Jesus, what it is to be in Jesus and with Jesus, gives this teaching. Let's look at verse 24 through 28. 
Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with the angels. And then he will reward each person according to what they have done. Truly I tell you, some of you standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that in your grace, you would bring a passage that is familiar to most of us, so familiar that it doesn't stun us and shock us and shake us anymore. God, give us the grace to be upset and undone by your word this morning. God, give us eyes that really do see, ears that hear, minds that understand, Lord, what you're saying here. Give us hearts to believe and wills to obey. God, show us yourself in this text. Show us ourselves in this text and show us the glory of your son in whose name we pray, amen. Um, Lewis Carroll, some of you will be familiar with his name. It wasn't his actual name, but it was his writing name and public name, was a, uh, a professor and intellectual in Oxford in the 19th century, uh, lived and worked at Christ College there. Uh, he wrote a book called Alice in Wonderland in 1865. When I was in Oxford, I got to see the area where his little daughter would play and the imagination of Lewis was stirred and he began to think about Alice in Wonderland um, there at Christ College and he wrote uh, that book, but he followed it with a sequel in 1871 called, anybody remember that one? Alice Through the Looking Glass. Yeah, Alice Through the Looking Glass. And if you remember the premise of this, um, it, it's like looking in a mirror with all kinds of pathways and life there, but when you walk toward it, you're actually getting further away from it to the point where you just run into it and you can't go any further. To get to what you're seeing and what you're wanting, you've actually got to turn around. You've got to go in, the different, in a different direction. It's an inside-out kind of world. And it's playful, but it is exactly what Jesus is teaching us here. That to follow him is an inside-out kind of, of life. It's a, a reversal of human wisdom, a reversal of human logic. It doesn't discount human logic, but we can't get there based on human logic. He starts out with a phrase that is, is so familiar that it's just become colloquially part of our culture. Oh, it's just the cross I bear. My husband, you know. I thought he'd be dead by now, but he's not. Jesus says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. We've talked before just in preceding weeks about what a visceral, visual, emotional statement that would have been. 
in his day to people who had seen, as we talked about, a small contingent of Roman soldiers come into their village, enter a house, take the man out of their house with the horizontal beam waiting outside, put it on his shoulders, and take him off on a one-way journey. It wasn't quaint or colloquial or interesting or sweet. It wasn't something they were forming jewelry out of. It was a terrifying picture that those Roman authorities may knock on your door or your brother's door or your dad's door or your son's door. And so what Jesus is saying here is stunning. We're to, to voluntarily, that what it means to come to him, what it means to follow him is to voluntarily take upon ourselves a symbol of humiliation and death and follow him. Jesus knows quite clearly that's what he's about to do, though. And as goes the master, so goes the servants. Let me just give you three statements as we think about this, because Jesus really puts this out there simply as a statement of truth and reality. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up the cross and follow me. That's it. There's no other way. He said, you don't come to me on your own terms. You don't stay with me on your own terms. You don't set the agenda, the parameters. This is the only way. And then he unpacks a little bit for us about why this is the case. Why this is the case. And I just give you these three points briefly, and then we're going to go back through them. Jesus tells us that kingdom life, kingdom life requires kingdom sacrifice. And when you hear me say kingdom, kingdom, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, you know, was Jesus' main thrust of his preaching and teaching. And he's saying that sphere where God rules and reigns unhindered is the place that human history is moving toward. That place where God dwells with his people and there are no more tears. And Genesis 3 has been undone. Restoration has come. There's new heaven and new earth. And all authority remains in and with Christ. And Jesus is saying this life requires sacrifice. He says also that kingdom life surpasses all the world can offer. Kingdom life surpasses all the world can offer. And finally, he teaches us that kingdom living results in eternal reward. Let's walk through these and look at this. Look at verse 25 again. Kingdom life requires kingdom sacrifice. Jesus, once he makes this statement about taking up his cross and following him, says whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me, for me, will find it. Do you see the inside-out nature of that? I think if we were honest in here, I know if we were honest in here and said, who in here wants to save your life? All of our hands would go up. Jesus said, if you want to do that, if you want your God-given life to be saved, to be preserved, to have an eternity in the presence of its creator and sustainer, you have to lose it. And you have to lose it for me. There's no other way around it. We are not a people accustomed to sacrifice. 
in the West. We live in the most abundant place that human history has ever known, at least currently. Sacrifice is not natural to us. We resist it intensely. Craig Keener, New Testament scholar, said, if disciples come after and imitate their teacher, listen to this, their lives are forfeit from the moment they begin following him. Although genuine disciples may fall short on their commitment at times, ever been there? I have. The gospel tradition emphasizes that those who wish to follow Jesus must understand from the start that they are surrendering their lives to him. From this perspective, most modern Western, quote, Christians remain unconverted. He's making the same thesis that Dean and Sarah is in his book, The Unsaved Christian, that most Westerners who claim to be Christian are Christian only in a cultural sense, only in the sense that they are not something else or an atheist, but not in the sense that the Bible talks about being made right with God, experiencing regeneration by the power and grace of God, being given a new heart and a new birth into Christ Jesus and the people of Jesus. And losing your life here as Jesus is talking about it has the meaning both of being fully absorbed in something or dying for it. Being fully absorbed in something or dying for it. Let me ask you this morning, are you, have you been fully absorbed into Christ? Is he Lord, does he call the shots and delightfully so? where your obedience in him grows out of your affection for him, out of your delight in him, because he's good and you know that he's good and you've tasted that he's good. And he walks with you and he talks with you as risen Lord and King, but also as Savior and friend. Are you there this morning? Because that's it. It's one of those two things to be a believer, fully absorbed in Jesus or dying for him. That's what it means. That's what it means. And that's what Jesus is teaching us here in verse 25. But let's go into verse 26. Jesus teaches us here that kingdom life surpasses all the world can offer. It's easy to say, but I'm going to try with the help of the Spirit to interrupt our thinking about it just a little bit. Look at what he says. He says, what good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Soul here equals life equals self. And part of what's underneath this Underneath this, in the the Hebrew-Greek context that Jesus is teaching is that the further we get from him and the further we get from obedience and submission to the God of our creation, the less human, the less of a true self we become. doesn't matter how successful we look on the outside. And the closer we get, the nearer we get, the more fully human, the more of a full and complete and whole self we become. In fact, if you take the New Testament, we can actually become generally righteous in time as we follow Jesus, and we should be. We'll never be fully righteous. That is imputed to us by God through Christ. 
But it doesn't mean that God is unconcerned ethically, morally, about what we think and say and do, losing your life, gaining the world. Who would give up their life and their soul to gain the whole world? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? What Jesus is saying here is astounding. He's saying, I, I am worth more than all that the world has to offer you. And can we agree the world has a lot to offer us? There's beauty and adventure and wealth and joy and travel and goodness and great food and great music and unbelievable views. Treasures and pleasures of all kinds. And the statement before us that we have to deal with and we have to acknowledge whether we believe or don't believe is that Jesus is better than all that the world has to offer. All that the world has to offer. Let me read you another statement from Dean and Sarah. I try to kind of move this around, this one and, and one more that's following to make it my own, but he just still said it better, so I'm just gonna read you what he says. He said, the Bible Belt version of cultural Christianity can outwardly seem pretty in step with actually following Jesus. See, this is the danger, and Jesus knew it in his day with hypocrisy. A hypocrite is simply a counterfeit, but a counterfeit is so powerful because it is so closely like the actual thing. The people know Bible stories and verses. They attend church, at least sporadically. They can quote the Lord's Prayer from memory and take pride in identifying as a Christian. It looks and sounds really close like the real thing. This makes things extremely complicated and also very urgent for missions because the difference between close and wrong has eternal consequences. And I submit to you that this is the game that most of the people you'll interact with tomorrow and throughout this next week are playing. And they're playing it to their detriment because they're going to know Jesus as Savior and King, as lover of their soul and sustainer of their life, or as eternal judge. They're going to know him. That day's coming for them. It's coming for me and it's coming for you. There's no escaping Jesus. There's no escaping the one who's crucified and risen three days later, defeating the grave. We will meet him. We will see him face to face. He is good and right and just. And I, it is my conviction that we play these cultural Christianity false faith games because we do not believe what Jesus teaches here. We do not believe he's better than all that the world has to offer. You know the people who know this the most are those who have the very least. That's why this is so dangerous to our souls in our context. Those who have the very least, those who've lost the most, have come to know the deep and beautiful truth of the sufficiency of Christ alone. We have so much more, though, that we can rely on. Jesus gives us good and honest words here. 
Third thing, you look at verse 27. Jesus tells us that kingdom living results in eternal reward. Now, I got to say, for those of us who don't see death often, and even when death happens, it's sort of covered up and whisked away in a dark uh, car to a, a little building none of us like going to, and they do some things in there, and then um, uh, at worst, you know, we might have a viewing at a coffin. More likely than not, uh, the coffin is closed or we just haven't cremated. We're not a society. We're a society extremely uncomfortable with death and living probably more so than any society in human history with a working idea that it's actually never going to come for us. So we don't think much about eternal reward. We don't spend a lot of time thinking about life after death or life after life after death, the eventuality of ourselves and our souls. Verse 27, for, for, you track this all the way back to why we deny ourselves and take up the cross, for the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. I said to you over and over that grace as we find it in Scripture. Grace is not opposed to effort. Grace is the fuel that drives our effort in Christ, that drives our effort toward holiness, our pursuit of righteousness in and through the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's opposed to earning. So don't hear Jesus saying here, if you just work good enough, you'll earn the reward of life in the kingdom. That's not what he's saying. But he's saying every one of us who's been called into him by the sovereign grace of God are going to receive more or less in reward in accordance with how we've lived, in accordance with our ability to be absorbed fully in him, for our values to be his values, our purposes to be his purposes, our glory only to be his glory and the glory of his name. It's a significant statement here. Um, we went to Georgia College, which is in Middle, uh, Milledgeville, last Sunday and visited JC. It was parents' weekend, so uh, we went. We saw some of the schools, saw her classes, walked around on campus, looked a little bit at Milledgeville, and I really wanted to, to tour uh, the home and farm of Flannery O'Connor. Uh, JC, surprisingly, was not overly excited about that. So she went, hung out with her friends, and did some other things. And Sharon and I went and, and toured this property, uh, property Flannery O'Connor, uh, early, mid-20th century author who gained great fame following her early death from lupus. But she was a firecracker, never married. Her mom, Regina, ran uh, the 500-plus the dairy farm and acreage there after her husband died, which was a huge loss to Flannery. Flannery's dad got her. He got her, her mom wanted her to be an upstanding Southern belle and that kind of, that kind of woman, but Flannery was uh, a woman of imagination and storytelling and uh, interest in literary things, and so the loss of her dad at a, a somewhat early age, a young adult, uh, was really hard for her, but her mom uh, and her ran it, but this is a time in our near history where women could only own so much property by themselves, probably due to the fact of your little brains. But, thank you, Sharon, that was a joke. Um, 
So Regina's brother, Flannery's uncle, lived there. He had a, he had a bedroom there, but he, he traveled a lot. He was a traveling salesman. He had his own back door. But in, in order for them to keep the 500-plus acres intact, after Flannery's dad died, they had to have uh, a male name um, on the title there. So interesting thing. But one of the things that Flannery wrote in one of her series of essays was this statement. Good Georgia girl, born in Savannah, lived out most of her life uh, in Milledgeville. Flannery wrote, while the South is hardly Christ-centered, it is certainly Christ-haunted. What she meant by that is there's a deep awareness of the reality of God and of our guilt before him that pervades the South and the Bible Belt. It has not gone away. Uh, Dean and Sarah, in interacting with Flannery O'Connor's statement here, says this, and, and I want to read this to you because what I'm trying to do, trying to do with the help of the Holy Spirit is paint a, a picture and help you get what it looks like to live this way because it is so close to the real thing, but so utterly far in reality, and it's so dangerous. And some of you in here this morning, this is you. Your heart is no more surrendered and your will surrendered to Jesus Christ than it is to a fence post. And you are in need of regeneration because if God determined to take your life later today or tonight, you would stand before him with no excuse at all. You've had every gospel witness imaginable put before you and you're still playing the game. And Sarah says this haunting that Flannery O'Connor talks about makes appearances at infant baptisms, funerals, when the family circles up in the kitchen and holds hands as grandpa leads the prayer before Thanksgiving dinner. The name of Christ lingers, appearing from time to time at family functions, milestones and traditions. The cohabitating couple with no church affiliation still asks the pastor to perform their ceremony rather than some other form of notary. And they have an uncle read a Bible passage during the wedding. In the South, Billy Graham is revered. Apologies are made when you cuss in front of the pastor. Donna's the only one that apologizes when she does that. <laughs> and there are certain people who feel guilty drinking beer. There are certain people you feel guilty drinking beer in front of when they see you at a restaurant. Again, that's only Donna. God can't be ignored, and Southerners know it. We know it because God has blessed the American South with an abundance of gospel witness, thereby massively increasing our accountability and guilt before him as we reject it. But the idea of a God interfering with their lives and things changing if they follow Jesus that's too much to handle, so the haunting remains. It's a way of life that must be understood in order to be reached. Church, if we're going to, in the coming years, begin to be, by the Spirit and power of God, a pervasive evangelistic witness in our community, which I hope and pray and anticipate us becoming, that will only happen when we understand the culture that we're sharing Jesus with. 
and then how it is that we go about sharing Jesus and sharing biblical truth with people who already take pride in considering themselves a Christian, but show absolutely no fruit or evidence of a regenerative heart, of having been made new in the power of Christ by the Holy Spirit. I say all this to say there is a time coming of judgment and reward. Throughout Scripture, some of you remember Psalm 62, 12 that just simply says, you reward everyone according to what they have done. Then we get to verse 28. Verse 28 has been a head scratcher for a lot of people. Truly, I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. It is mostly, not, not entirely, but mostly a head-scratcher because we do not know well biblical theology. We don't know well how to connect the different pieces and phrases of Scripture from the Old Testament to the New Testament and how uh, the thinking of those writing the Gospels understood this. You, you get just a little hint of this. You don't have to turn back, but in Daniel chapter 7, it's where we get the original picture of the, the Son of Man, this phrase being a ruler and reigner. Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. When you understand some of the, the imagery of Daniel, you more deeply understand how Jesus was understanding himself and the nature of his role as Messiah, coming king and victor. The, the, the kingdom of God is complete completes itself at the return of Jesus, judgment and restoration of all things. But friends, it doesn't start there. It doesn't start there. You remember in Matthew 3, Matthew chapter 3, we're told to repent and believe for, for what is at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. To be at hand means to be present, to be here. It's the exact same phrase that Jesus uses in the Garden of Gethsemane when he turns to his disciples and says, behold, my betrayer is at hand. He's here. Judas is here. With the temple guards and Romans. The kingdom came with Jesus. You remember the much loved passage in Isaiah 9 that we'll uh, read it here again in a few weeks. For unto us a, a child is born. Unto us a child is given. And on his shoulders the governments will rest. The governments will rise and fall based on his sovereign will. The kingdom is complete at the return, but it doesn't start there. It doesn't start there. Truly I tell you. And I want to make a comment about tasting death. That's weird. I think we all know what he means here. But it's a, a Semitic idiom. A Semitic idiom for experiencing death, for going through death. And Jesus is saying, some of you here standing before me, you're not going to die before you see what I'm talking about here. 
And it's perplexing. When you, when you take verses 27 and 28 together, um, it, it, it can be perplexing and confusing. I actually read one commentator this week who, who gave a series of explanations of this, and he said, uh, he said it, it is no doubt that the best explanation for this must be simply the first. Well, the first explanation was simply that Matthew got this wrong, that Matthew misunderstood this. And I thought, I got to disagree with you, brother. I have no doubt that Matthew didn't understand all of this. But that under the, the, the superintending power of the Holy Spirit, he's, he's writing. Matthew doesn't get anything wrong. When we run across something in Scripture that jumps out as being weird compared to the rest of it or, or, or difficult for us to understand, the, the problem lies with us, not with the Word of God. Let me work this out for you just a bit with a, a few statements um, from scholars that I think help us understand this and shed some light on it. Um, the first says this, a general prediction in terms of Jesus saying you'll not taste death before you see the, the Son of Man coming in his kingdom is intended to be taken as a general prediction of Christ's future glory up to his return to earth, but encompassing the resurrection, the ascension, the Pentecost, and his present heavenly rule at the right hand of God the Father. That in that sense, all of that is Jesus ruling and reigning as the Son of of man in his kingdom. Another one said, it seems best to take verse 28 as having a more general reference, namely, not referring simply to the resurrection, to Pentecost or to the light, but to the manifestation of Christ's kingly reign exhibited after the resurrection in a host of ways, not the least of them being the rapid multiplication of disciples and the mission to the Gentiles. Two more. It is probably inappropriate, speaking of verse 28, um, to this saying to posit a specific time and place, i.e. the return of Christ. The point is that while some of them are still alive, it will have become made clear to those with eyes to see it that Jesus, the Son of Man, has now been enthroned as King. And then... A single phrase here from N.T. Wright that I think is pretty clear. The phrases about the Son of Man coming in his kingdom and the like are not about what we call the second coming of Jesus. They are about his vindication, his resurrection following his suffering and death on the cross. They are fulfilled when he rises from the dead and is granted all authority in heaven and on earth. I absolutely believe that, that what these scholars say is exactly what is intended in this verse. It's not the second coming, it's the fact that very shortly, while they're still alive, they're going to know Jesus and understand him in a way that they don't right now, and they don't even right up until his crucifixion. That it's at his resurrection and beyond that they begin to understand that he is now king of heaven and earth. He holds within himself all authority and reigns over all that is, and he will complete his reign and his rule at his second coming. The beautiful thing is that we were able to know Jesus that way now. Do you know that he reigns now? Do you know that the kingdom is present now? One of the reasons um, that uh, Dallas Willard's book, The Divine Conspiracy, has become such a classic is because he does such a beautifully profound and biblical job of unpacking what it means for the kingdom of God to be present, to be inaugurated by his spirit now. 
that you and I are called to live in it now by the Spirit. As we wake up, we're, we're living for and by the Holy Spirit now. You know how much of our trouble, how much of, of, of my um, shortcomings and my anger and my not being what I should be as a husband to Sharon and not being what I should be as a dad to, to my tribe of children, not being what I should be to our staff, to you guys as our church, comes from a lack of awareness every day and every minute that God has called me and created me to walk by and in the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit. So the Spirit's guiding my actions. The Spirit's guiding my responses. And sometimes I just need to shut my mouth. Just zip it. Until I can sense a spiritually prompted response. N.T. Wright, in a quote that I think brings us to a, a point of invitation and declaration this morning, says that in this passage, here a call goes out to follow Jesus. A call which rings down the centuries like a great bell in a distant church tower, calling us from whatever we're doing. Doesn't matter your vocation, doesn't matter your, your status in your family, doesn't matter where you are in school or where you are in your season of life, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter how much you have in your bank account or how little you have, or if you had so little they just closed it on their own. You're like, thank you, one less thing. Doesn't matter. Calls us from whatever we're doing. Imagine the bell echoing through the streets of your community. Imagine this, this bell of invitation, of calling to follow Jesus, echoing in your street, in your subdivision, in your home. The bell tolls. And the call is simply this. Pick up your cross and follow me. Pick up your cross and follow me. There, there is no entry into God's kingdom without utter and complete self-denial, without full, full surrender of yourself to the lordship and kingship of Jesus Christ. Let me ask you this morning, point blank, have you lost your life for the sake of Christ? Or have you tried to, to put Christ on like a coat and just take him wherever you're going to go anyway to do whatever you're going to do anyway, just hoping he'll keep you warm while you're doing it? There's a distinct, tragic, and eternal difference in the two. Have you lost your life for the sake of Christ? Have you surrendered it all to this clarion call that Jesus makes to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow him, to lose your life, that he might give it to you, that he and his love for you, in his, his dying love for you, his sacrificial love for you, might by his spirit make you all that he intends you to be, fully human, fully alive, 
fully present, fully engaged in the world around you. That's the life we get only as we surrender the dreams that we so tenaciously hold on to, the the plans that we so violently keep in our hands for our lives. And we say, I give it all to you. I give it all to you. And I give it to you honestly. I'm a little nervous. I don't know what you're going to do. But I choose to believe you're good because your word says you are. And I know I'm a sinner. And you're a savior. And sinners don't need help. And sinners don't need counseling. And sinners don't need pills. Sinners need saviors, church. Have you lost your life for the sake of Christ? If not, that's my invitation to you this morning. It's God's invitation to you. If that's you this morning and you know you haven't, but you know you have now. If God's turned the light on in your soul and you felt that whisper, yes, God, forgive me, I receive you. I'd love to talk to you after the service. Jake would love to talk to you. He'll be available in the foyer. I'll be available down here. That's just the beginning of a wild and unimaginable journey in Christ. Let's pray. God, I plead with you to prevent any of us in this room, any of us on the stage, any of us sitting out here, any of us watching to live confused and deluded about who we are in you, about where we are in relation to you. And Father, I pray that there'd be nothing in our lives that we wouldn't be willing to sacrificially lay at your beautiful feet and say, the harder and longer I try to hold on to this, the more it's ruining me and the more it's ruining this thing I'm holding. So Jesus, I trust it to you. I trust them to you. I trust him to you. I trust her to you. I trust this dream, this wound. I trust what I don't feel like I am. I trust what I hope I become. I trust it all to you, Jesus. For you are worthy. And this morning, if not before, I surrender to you. Be my Lord. Be my Savior. Thank you, Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen. For more information about Lost Mountain, visit us online at lnbc.us. Thanks for tuning in today.